We used to sing that song with our girls pretty often when they were young. And at some point in there, we'd do, I'd say, swish version. <laughs> and they would, then it was bringing in the cheese. <laughs> yeah. True, right? <laughs> For those of you who have a Bible this morning with you, those of you who are godly will, um, <laughs> turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. We continue with the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we consider um, really the first practical application of the Beatitudes, um, that you would give us ears to hear, um, whether we are Christians or not Christians, you would give us eyes to see. I pray this morning you would encourage us not only in our faith, but you would encourage us uh, in our zeal to see that faith spread. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been here for, I don't know, the past three or four weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I often, I tip, most typically begin each sermon with some kind of question to sort of get your, your mind going. And really, at this point, we've just finished the Beatitudes, and so I just wanted to sort of ask this review question, because it's important. Um, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Right, we've been looking at it for a month or five, six weeks now. What is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? And if the answer didn't come right to your head, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount really at some level is what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to, to what we've been saying, live out your best life. And that's not just a pithy kind of thing that we made up for, for a sermon series because it sounded cool, although it does, I think, is really what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is here's what it means to live your best life. First of all, you've got to become one of my followers, right? You've got to be saved from your sins. You've got to be delivered from them. You've got to experience my grace. And then the more you begin to live like this, the, the more you will experience your best life. The word blessed means there. So how do we experience our best life? And so up to this point, if you remember, we've looked at the Beatitudes, and I'll read them to you quickly. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and finally blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. <clears throat> so he gives us the Beatitudes, really a summary of everything that's going to come after. And what's instructive, I think, for us is that when Jesus finishes the Beatitudes, and then he basically is going to now apply the Beatitudes to our life, what it means to live out the gospel, the very first thing he starts with is mission. In other words, he doesn't say, okay, he, he doesn't summarize everything and say, okay, here's, here are these Beatitudes, here's how you live your best life, now here's how to work it out. He doesn't say, now what you need to do, first thing, you need to pray a lot. 
Second thing, you need to read your Bible and then, you know, and talk about anger and lust and, and praying and giving and all these things, which he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he does get there, but the thing he starts with when he begins to apply the Beatitudes is mission. How you, as a church, how his disciples are to be outwardly faced. I think the reason he does that is because that's the easiest thing to get lost if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, it's sort of easy to focus on things I need to do that are expected of Christians, right? I need to have a quiet time, and I need to read my Bible, and I need to pray, and I need to go in church, I need to go to a small group, I need to do all of these things. And yet the place Jesus starts is you and I are supposed to be witnesses to people outside of the church. So as we look at these things today, basically we're going to only look at two things this morning. Um, we're going to look at basically our calling to be salty and our calling to be seen. Now these things, it's at, on the surface of them, on the face of them, are sort of outrageous if you have a eyes to see. Because these are the kinds of things we would expect Jesus to say of himself. You expect Jesus to say, I am the, the salt of the earth. Or you, Jesus does say of himself, I am the light of the world. And yet here he says to his disciples, and ultimately he says to you and me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That at some level the mission of God depends on what you and I do with our lives and what you and I do with the gospel. So the first thing we'll look at is our calling to be salty. Notice verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the first thing you got to do is sort of figure out what he means by salt when he says you are the salt of, of the earth. And well, in modern times for us, we tend to think of salt as what? As, as a flavoring, as something that, that you need to put on your food, right? Maybe a little dash, or in my case, a lot. We eat it like that. Well, in the ancient Near East, they, the, probably the last thing when they heard the word salt, they would have thought of is, I need some more of this on my food. Because in the ancient Near East, what you would have used salt for would be to preserve food and to purify food and to, to use it as an antiseptic. In other words, you wouldn't put salt on your food in the ancient Near East because your food would have been basking in salt for maybe weeks, months, or years. So it was primarily seen as a preservative and an antiseptic. So that's important because what does Jesus then mean by when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Well, what the, the presupposition there is that the earth is in a state of decay, or that the cosmos, the world, the, as we know it, is in a state of decay, or is it, it's, a, it's a state of decomposition. And if you, you, know, you know anything about science, or even a little bit about science, you've probably heard the second law of thermodynamics, right? Which the second law of thermodynamics says, we have a lot of engineers in here, that basically says that from a scientific perspective, even if you're an atheist, that things any, in any system tend from order to disorder, right? They tend to, from integration to disintegration. And so just you, you can think about that on any number of levels. Imagine if you went home this afternoon, and you can do this experiment if you want, go home this afternoon and just take out a chicken breast and put it on a plate and just leave it on your counter and don't do anything with it for several days. What will happen? 
the system, if you will, that makes up that chicken breast will begin to break down. And bacteria will begin to break it down. And ultimately, what will happen? It, it will stink. Right? All of us experience that in our bodies. Right? Or your body is the exact same way. So on one hand, if, you're, if you take care of yourself and you eat right and you exercise and, and all of these things, or if you don't do those things, what happens? If you, do, if you don't exercise and take care of yourself, ultimately you get fat and you get sick and you die, right? Now the question is, what happens if you do take care of yourself? At some point you get fat and you get sick and you die. The only difference is, is that you prolong it. I mean, ho hopefully you take care of yourself that, that you, can, you can push back that getting fat and sick and dying for 20 or 30 years maybe. But at the end of the day, it is still going to happen. And the same is true of our society. You think about our society. On one hand, there, there are good things that happen in society and in the world. But on the other hand, if you really begin to read the newspaper and you begin to think about it, things are in a constant state of disintegration. You know how many active conflicts there are in the world right now? Fifty. We tend to think, oh, the war in Afghanistan, that's one. And there's 49 other active conflicts. I think 30 of them are in different countries in Africa. That's where different people, different countries, different city-states are trying to kill each other. Right? That's happening right now. What else is going on? I wrote down some things. Oh, in the United States, sexual abuse is rampant. In some sense, it always has been a quarter of women, or a third of women and a quarter of men at some point in their life are sexually abused. That's just the ones who report. That's not a good thing. I was looking up educational statistics this week from the National Education Statistics website and read that two-thirds of eighth graders in the United States are not proficient in math and reading. That blew my mind. But this one is really going to blow your mind because I thought, you know, I try to go from global to, to local, and so I thought, well, homelessness is a bad thing. That seems like a disintegrated thing. And so I found this, this article from City Journal magazine. And so I'm quoting Christopher Rufo, writing in City Journal magazine in uh, fall of 2018. He said, according to Puget Sound Business Journal, the Seattle metro area spends more than a billion dollars fighting homelessness every year. That's nearly $100,000 for every homeless man, woman, and child in King County, yet the crisis seems only to have deepened with more addiction, more crime, more tent encampments in residential neighborhoods. By any measure, the city's efforts are not working. Does that, I, why don't we just give them the money, right? I mean, it's like, how is a billion dollars being spent on a problem and nothing's getting better? Well, on one hand, it just, just shows how bad the problem is. On the other hand, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, someone is making a lot of money off of homeless people. And that's bad. That's not a good thing, right? And so if you just look at that, we are called in the context of all of this to somehow be salt, to be a preservative, to make things better for the homeless, to make things better for children in schools, to make things better for society, to, to be an agent that not only preserves but purifies all of those things. And the problem is in the Bible, the Bible says that the reason that society is corrupt and everything else that we, we look at is in a place, state of disintegration is because the human heart is corrupt and in a state of disintegration. One of my favorite quotes 
is years ago, um, the London Times wrote a, several famous authors, and they just asked them the question, what is wrong with the world? And they wrote G.K. Chesterton. They wrote, you know, dear Mr. Chesterton, um, what is wrong with the world? And he replied back to them, and I quote verbatim, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Right? He gets it, that the problem of the human heart is this thing called sin. The reason the world is corrupt is because we are corrupt. In the midst of all this, we're supposed to be salt. And what does that mean for us? Well, that means uh, that we are to, to practice incarnation. What does incarnation mean? Basically, salt is only good if it's rubbed into something. In other words, so remember when Samuel sat on that pole up here? Ever since then, our elders have been worried that I would try and up it and do something even more dangerous. And today's thing isn't more dangerous, but it does involve raw meat. Right, so imagine I have this piece of meat here, right? Some sweet lady at Fred Meyer gave me this for free when I told her it was for a sermon. So you have this piece of meat, and it's just here, and I've got salt that's right there. Now, that meat is going to be preserved, correct? As long as that salt stays in the, in the box, it's worthless. The only way that salt is effective is if it is poured out, right? Samuel, you can have this when I'm done. You've got to pour it out. You can't, you can't just say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm the salt of the earth, and I'm over here, you know, and I, and, but I never get poured out. When I talk about incarnation, what I talk about is uh, the fact that our lives ought to be being rubbed in to the lives of other people. Often in church, we, we, we think that church is just this place where we come, and we learn, and then we go out, and we stay in the box all the time. I mean, imagine this. Imagine after the fall of man... God says, Jesus, come here. Jesus comes, yes, Father. We need to do something about this. And so what I want you to do, man has fallen. Everything is corrupt now. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be preserved. So what I want you to do is I want you to go down there. Not all the way down, just close enough so they can hear you. And yell and tell them how bad they are. And tell them that they need to get their act together. But don't get your hands dirty. And he said, you know, if, if, you, if you're at it, maybe put some billboards up. Maybe like a big Uncle Sam billboard with Bible verses on it. That'll make a lot of difference. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Just the, the, the thought of it is ridiculous. But fortunately, that's not what he's done. Remember what John 1 says? John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus uh, didn't avoid us. Jesus didn't avoid sinners. He actually came down. He became one of us and pursued the very worst of sinners. And it, it always is, it's, it's sort of mind-boggling when you begin to think about it. That, remember when Jesus healed people? Sometimes he healed people where someone would come up and say, my, my, my son is sick at home. And he would say, your faith has made him well. Go. Like for miles away, Jesus could heal somebody. But whenever he had the chance, he actually touched them. He put his hand on the leper, people who no one else would touch. I remember, remember the, I love the story of the, the man of 
the blind man who Jesus like spits in the mud and rubs it in his eyes and the guy can't see? And he says, how about now? He's like, oh, men are trees walking. (laughs) It's like, you just rub mud in my eyes. And he's like, how about now? He's touching him. Jesus is intimately involved in the lives of sinners. That is how he brings the gospel to them. And the, the gospel in the lives of the people we know won't be brought to them unless we are intimately involved in their lives. We are called to be to other people what Jesus has been to us. That the, that the greatest incarnation, when Jesus came down through the work and blood of his cross, he purified us and he preserves us. And because he's done that, he now calls us to go out and be witnesses of that to the rest of the world. And just by way of, of just a point, it, the, the way people are one around us is by incarnation, not by technology. In other words, just by posting like a picture of Jesus and say, like and share if you believe, that might be cool, I guess, but people generally speaking are not moved by that. The way people are moved is by someone else investing in their lives. In other words, when you look at people who have become Christians as adults who weren't raised in Christian families, but who somehow became Christians as adults, almost, I think about 80 or 90% of the time, it's because some Christian person invested themselves in them and some Christian person invited them to something. Right? My family, when I was growing up, never went to church. I mean, I can remember two times going to church when I was a kid. And yet, I, went, I was in high school with two, there were two girls in a German class. It was me and two girls. And over the course of four years, we became friends. They invested in my life, and then they invited me to a camp. And at the camp, I heard the message of of Jesus, and I became a Christian. If they hadn't invested in me, and if they hadn't invited me, I might not be here. See how that works? And so the question I have for us, the the challenge, is how many of us here in this room are, are investing at all in someone who doesn't know Jesus? taking them out to lunch, taking them out to coffee. It doesn't have to be big. Are we investing at all in our neighbors? Are we getting to know our neighbors? And it doesn't have to be big. Yesterday or two days ago, my neighbor was out in his front yard. He's from Ukraine. He doesn't speak English very well. And he was digging, and I was walking to work. And I said, hey, Andre, I said, can I ask you a favor? And he said, yeah, sure. I said, when you're finished with your yard, can you go to mine and dig up all my dahlias and wash them off? And then put them back in and cover them with straw. And he looked up and he said, you're kidding. I said, of course I am. And he's like, oh, you're funny, you're funny. Are you engaging? Even if you're weird, right? (laughs) Ask yourself that. Because not only are we called to engage, not only are we called to be sort of rubbed into the lives of those around us, but we're called to be seen. And we're called to be heard. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says on one hand, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And he says that salt, if it loses its taste, how should saltiness be restored? He says, if it doesn't, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. And then he moves on to say that we should be seen. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So remember, just as I said, salt, the, the fact that Jesus says you need to be the salt of the earth presupposes that the earth is in a state of sort of decay. Well, when he says you're to be the light of the world, what does that presuppose about the world? That the world is in a state of darkness, that we are supposed to bear witness in the midst of the darkness and chaos that is the world. And by the way, the whole story of the Bible is about this, that God set out with a mission and, and Adam and Eve just blew it and failed, and God said he was going to fix it. And then he calls Abraham, remember in Genesis chapter 12, he calls this, this Gentile, Abraham, and says, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That you, that you ultimately are going to be a light to them, if you will. In Exodus chapter 19, God calls Israel together right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, by the way, and reminds them of their mission. Right? He says, you, you are, are a nation of priests, holy to God, that ultimately, Israel, you will be a light to the nations. By the time you get to Isaiah, here's what God says about Israel in chapter uh, 42, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And if you remember, uh, which I'm sure you do, before we even started, right before the Sermon on the Mount started, we heard this, these words from Isaiah about the people in darkness have seen a great light. So that God's people have always been called to be light. This isn't a new thing Jesus is calling them to. Now, the thing is, what he's calling them to now is that they are to not just be light, but actually we are to be reflected light. Because notice what Jesus says of himself in John 1. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, Jesus says, In him, or the Bible says, In him was life, and life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that he might, all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. In verse 8, or chapter 8, do you remember Jesus basically um, stood up at the Feast of Booths, and after he had said, if anyone is thirsty, come unto me and drink, he stood up and said, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in chapter 12, shortly before he's getting ready to, to go to his cross, basically, um, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And so the light we have is a reflected light. And given what Jesus said, all the things I've just taken as a context for Jesus saying, now to us, you are the light of the world. So what does he expect from us? when he says you are the light of the world. Two or three things. The first thing, look at verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what does he expect of us there? I think as if you're a follower of Jesus, he expects you to be seen and he expects you to be heard. Now that's different from being, he doesn't expect you to be obnoxious <laughs> and he doesn't expect you to constantly be in people's face or constantly being leaving out of religious literature on people's desks at work and so everyone hates you. 
But he does expect you to be seen and heard, that we're to bear witness to him in one way or the other. And we're to, to, to at, when appropriate, speak the words of the gospel from time to time. You know, there's a, a quote, it always, at some point, it usually makes it on Facebook about once a year, and it circulates, and, and it's, it, it, it's wrongly attributed, and it's wrong in and of itself, right? The, it's attributed generally to St. Francis of Assisi, and it says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Okay, that's like saying, uh, feed the hungry at all time, and if necessary, use food. Right? You can't. You, it, it, there is no gospel without words at some point. But even if you're not involved in the, the proclamation of the gospel, telling people with your mouth, maybe you're not gifted at it, all of us are responsible to be involved in the process of people coming to know Jesus, whether that means serving at church or uh, you know, inviting people to coffee and then inviting them to do you know, something with your family, something like that. Um, verse 15, uh, he says, nor do people put a lamp Hide, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So on one hand, we're expected to, to be seen. Verse 15, I think, says we're expected to have an impact. That the light, in, that, that when you light the light in the house, it gives light to everybody. That's a, a small oil, oil lamp. And he says, what you, basically, do you, light, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be foolish. And Jesus says, you guys are the light of the world. And so the question you gotta ask yourself, um, do I tend to put on myself a, a, a glass lampshade that amplifies the light that Jesus gives me, or do I put myself under a basket? Do I look at church that way? You know, the other night at, a, at our session meeting, I told the elders, I said, yeah, I'm a little worried that we're getting a little comfortable, and everyone, like, got nervous. But it's sort of true that we look, you can be in this building, in the actual church building, whether it's our church or any other church, can actually be like a basket that keeps the light from shining out because we come in here and we're comfortable and it looks bright and it looks like, wow, everyone's a Christian here, it's awesome. But if we're not actually bearing light into the world, we're not actually doing what Jesus told us to do. We're not actually having an impact in the world. And so the third thing, as Jesus bottom lines everything in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And basically, Jesus expects us to bear witness and word and deed so that other people can come to know Christ. And every, when, you, when you start talking about that in church, people start getting nervous, people start getting um, feeling guilty, like, oh boy, we're talking about evangelism again, you know, and like, I'm so nervous and I want that to happen. Peter puts it this way, the, the apostle Peter in his book. He basically says in two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for your, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That we are both to proclaim the excellencies of God, but the people outside are supposed to see our good deeds. And as a result of those two, they're to proclaim the, the glory of God, that people are to come to know what it means to follow the true God. 
So one of that mean? One of the reasons, and so here's, I'm going to give you some practical applications as we're going. One of the reasons we do Discover New Hope here, right? You, how many of you have ever heard us mention Discover New Hope? Okay. One of the reasons we do that is so that people are visiting and people who are new can learn about our church. Right? And so the first, today we're going to do week number one, who we are as a denomination, who we are as a church, what we believe, who the pastor is, all that kind of stuff. Next week, what we believe, the week after that, how we connect, and the week after that, how you, how you join. One of the reasons we do this for new people, one of the reasons we do Discover New Hope is for you, if you're a member. You see, if you're a member, you also should go to Discover New Hope at some point. That way, when your friends come with you or you meet someone in the narthex who's visiting, you can say, you should go to Discover New Hope. It's awesome. I've been there. Right? And instead, we often think, ah, Discover New Hope, that's for other people. It's actually, if, you're, if I haven't made that clear yet, that's actually for you. That's a tool that a lot of people put a lot of work in for our church to use. So if you want to come today, we'd love to have you. Right? I'm not saying that just to bump up numbers, by the way. Um, I'm saying it because it is a tool for you to use. The other thing um, is one of the things I say in, the, in Discover New Hope to everyone who comes, if they're thinking about joining, is that you need to join our church or you need to join some church because the church needs you. The church needs you. If you're here today, whether you're a member or not a member, the, some, the church needs you, whether our church or someone else, you have something that is crucial to the proclamation and the process of the gospel in people's lives that no one else brings and we need you, but we don't know that unless you begin to avail yourself and make yourself known. So one thing I want to do today, I want to leave you with a challenge, um, is today when you, when you leave here and you go home, when you finally get home, maybe you go to lunch after, whatever you do, when you finally get to your house and you walk up to the front door, I want you to stop and not walk in, but instead turn around so that your front door is now at your back, and I want you to look around at your neighborhood, and I want you to, to think to yourself, basically, um, the, the people that you see, every house that you see, unless you know differently, is your responsibility. Every, every person, that, in other words, as you look around and see all these houses, that you have to believe that God put you in that neighborhood for the reason to bear witness to his glorious light. And maybe you talk to your kids about that. Maybe you point out to your kids, you know, you know there's the Joneses and there's the Smiths and there's the this and there's the that. And until we know differently, we are actually the ones put here to bear light to them. And then maybe pray, God, how do you want me to engage my neighbors? How do you want me to be rubbed in? What incarnational ministry do you want me to partake in in their lives? So you think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that, um, you know, as we consider the, the first application of the Sermon on the Mount is mission, and it seem, in many ways it seems overwhelming, especially when we look back and the last thing Jesus said before this is, blessed are the persecuted. And so I just pray that you would give our church a heart for mission, uh, uh, not just mission overseas and not just mission even um, in church planting and those things, which I pray you do, but I pray that you give us a heart for mission for those who are maybe 50 feet away from us every single day of our lives, whether at work or our neighbors and places like that. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.